Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. My guest for this episode is Peg O'Connor. She is a professor of philosophy at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. She's also the author of a new book to be published on September 1st of this year, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. Before we go any further, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're looking for a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at Soberlink.com BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering Soberlink, and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now... Episode 273, Higher and Friendly Powers. The conversation begins with Peg describing her initial reaction to AA and why she stayed away for some 20 years. I went to one AA meeting as a young college student and then didn't go back to another one until I had been sober for almost 20 years. Wow. What was it about the way it was presented to you, you think, that that was an obstacle? I was a young person. I was 19 years old. I was in college and uh, I had been raised Catholic, 13 years of Catholic school and had developed a severe drinking problem in high school that really was a full-blown addiction by the time I was a, a junior in high school, certainly by the time I was a senior in high school and my drinking just accelerated in college. And I don't even remember how this came to pass, but I met someone who was in college with me and said, well, I go to AA, do you want to go too? And I thought, well, why the heck not? My my motives weren't entirely pure. I liked the girl. Um, So, you know, who knows? People come through the doors for all kinds of reasons. But I was 19 years old and the language of the steps of a higher power of God as a higher power, even with the qualifier as we understood him, it was all very familiar language to me. And I was feeling as if I didn't believe that there was a God, or if there is a God, that that God would have any interest in, what, removing my defects of character, having a will for me, and I just had to, in some ways, sit down and shut up and, and follow, follow God's way. I mean, I was just so alienated from any notion of a God, but really what it was at at 19 as the way that powerlessness was talked about, I didn't want to think I was powerless because, well, when you're 19, 20, you think you're invincible. You think you've got a lot going for you and to say, ah, but I'm powerless. I couldn't do it. 
And so I continued drinking. I went to that one AA meeting and didn't feel any kind of affinity for the group and continued drinking and sobered up a couple of months after college graduation. And then I became sober and stayed sober. And about 20 years into that, I decided, well, why not try AA again? Why not try something different? I think oftentimes in recovery, we might start to take it for granted or we get a little rigid in how we think we must do recovery. And I had met a couple of friends who went to AA and I thought, well, I like these people. I can, I can see myself hanging out with them. But I still had the same kind of resistance to God as a higher power and turning my will over and having a God remove my defects of character. And this is where my training as a philosopher comes in. So I'm trained in moral philosophy. So I was a philosophy graduate, undergraduate, and was reading Plato and Aristotle and David Hume, these great figures in moral philosophy, where they talked about character and the kinds of virtues that a person of good character has. And and I believe that I really do make my own character. So it isn't for some providential God to change my character. I'm responsible for my character. And one of the things that Aristotle, so ancient philosopher writing around 350 BCE, or maybe a little around 350, that's about right, said that you become who you are by what you do habitually or repeatedly. And that really worked for me as a way to understand addiction. And I needed to apply that to recovery. And I was living a life in which my being an alcoholic, my being in recovery, I never closeted about that. And I use that word intentionally. I mean, as as someone who is a member of the queer community, I know sort of the implications of that term. It's not that I ever sort of closeted myself as a recovering alcoholic, but it was just something kind of off to the side about me. I never thought about it as anything other than, well, this is just this thing that goes on with me. And I, I segregated that part of my life. And then about 12 years ago, I decided once again, you've got to start doing things differently. And that's when I started bringing philosophy into conversation with questions about addiction and recovery. And it's been remarkably fruitful and fun. And I have had opportunities that I never would have had in life had I not started doing this kind of work. So my, my experience was, was that I didn't have a religious background, felt kind of out of place when, I, when they presented me with God, but I just kind of conformed to whatever the, the group was doing. Then many, many years later came to realize I couldn't, couldn't conform anymore. And then I came to understand all of this recovery, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, as just, as just language, different ways of expressing the same experience pretty much. And so I still kind of struggle, though, with some of the, with some of the language, higher power, spirituality, and those kind of words. When I hear them, I still have to kind of interpret them in my own, in my brain. I think that's right. I think some of us live in translation like that all the time um, when we're in AA or NA or OA. I mean, any of that where there's a certain taken for grantedness about everyone's level of comfort with this kind of of language. And I think one of the hard parts for me has always been, I've always struggled with the how it works. So that begins, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail who thoroughly follows our path. So that automatically sets it up. If if there is failure on the part of any one person, it's his, her, or their fault. Okay, that doesn't help. 
And then that it comes down to honesty. But I know I felt somewhat dishonest in AA meetings, particular ones that would end with the with the Our Father. And 13 years of Catholic school here. So when that prayer starts, I start saying my head in Latin because that's what we had to do. And it would always be this moment where I would just, I would pull back and I would lose the fellowship in a kind of way because I would separate myself out thinking, but I don't believe this. So I felt like I was being dishonest in a kind of way. And for me, I think staying in AA and just going along, I sometimes joke that my middle name really should have been Peg just goes along. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> it's just easier to do in some ways. And we all want to fit in. And here are these people whom I really like and respect and have some really good sobriety and really good experience. But I always felt like, but I don't believe. And so the more reasons someone has to wonder whether or not they believe they belong, that's a problem. So this book that you're going to be, that you've written and will be published in September is really interesting. You write about William James quite a bit and the varieties of religious experience that uh, Bill Wilson borrowed from when he wrote the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have to tell you, all I knew about William James for the longest time, for like 30 some years, was that Bill Wilson learned from him and wrote the book, but that's all, all I knew. And then a few months ago, I had, I did a podcast episode with somebody who wrote a book about William James. I learned even more about him. And I had no idea who this guy was even, you know, and then reading what you've written about him, I got more of more, more personal background about where he was coming from as a human being. I had no idea that his family had these struggles with depression and alcoholism. And I wonder if you could kind of help fill in the blanks for the audience about who William James is and, and why he's important. So Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob refer to James as a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, even though James had died about 25 years prior to Bill Wilson's big conversion experience in the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York City in 1934. And I had read several citations of Bill Wilson talking about William James, you know, this, you know, this man long dead, he's really a co-founder, because of the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, that Bill Wilson's friend, Abby Thacker, gave him right after he had the conversion. So there's Bill Wilson in this asylum for the inebriate, trying to get sober yet again. And he's very defiant. And he says, if there is a God, let him show himself now. I'm willing to do anything. And he has one of those big white light gusts of spirit experiences. At the end of that, he said, and my desire to drink was suddenly lifted. And then a couple of beats later, he's worried perhaps that he's losing his mind or that he's hallucinating because one of the treatments for alcohol withdrawal was the use of belladonna, which can cause hallucinations and withdrawal can cause hallucinations. So Bill Wilson had good reason to be, <laughs> right. but thankfully his pal Ebby gave him this book. And I think Dr. Silkworth also said, this is a book you should read. So who was William James? Well, William James was born in 1842. He is the older brother of the great American novelist, Henry James. And he had a sister, Alice James, who's very well known in feminist cir cir circles as a diarist. But she was the girl of the family. She was the youngest. Her education was always kind of secondary or even tertiary. So William James had two other brothers as well. He had a younger brother, 
Garth Wilkinson, called Wilkie for short, and he had a brother, Robertson, called Bob for short. And Bob was what we would say now, if we were using the substance use disorder, was a severe, chronic alcoholic. So what are there 11 criteria for the SUD? I always get my numbers mixed up. He would be scoring an 11. And William James was extraordinarily close to his brother, Bob, and he couldn't do anything about it. William James was trained as a psychologist and he was trained as a physician and he was a philosopher and he stood hopelessly by as his brother would be in and out of the term was asylums for the inebriate, where at one point he spent five years in one of these asylums in one of these treatment centers So the James family was one of the wealthiest families in the United States in the mid-1800s. And William James and his brother Henry James were regarded by their father as the intellectual stars of the family. And they had a very unconventional upbringing. So they moved back and forth across Europe and the United States about six or seven times over a five-year period, all towards the end of William James and Henry James getting the kind of proper education that their father believed that they deserve. The other two brothers, Wilkie and Bob, apparently didn't have the same intellectual flair or their father wasn't as concerned about their abilities. Because while Henry Sr. forbade William, and he went by Harry at the time, forbade them from joining the Civil War, the Union forces, he allowed his two younger sons to join. And it was a terribly traumatic experience for both of them. And I think it's really interesting. Each of them actually ended up in regiments out of Massachusetts, which were for black men. So there is always something very democratic about the James family. At the same time, they're one of the wealthiest families in the United States. But William James' brothers and his sisters all had very nervous temperaments. So I'm going to use the language of the time in the mid-1800s. They understood themselves to have this diagnosis called neurasthenia. And what that meant was they were very prone to nervous disorders, to anxiety, that they had nervous stomachs and their GI tracts would give up on them, and they were fatigued and exhausted all the time. And this diagnosis tended to be given to people of the literary class. Um, This was not a diagnosis that you would see a lumberjack getting, for example. (laughs) And William James suffered acutely. So one of the things that is so clear is that he knew suffering from the inside. He knew his own suffering, where as a young man, after he finishes undergraduate college and goes to medical school, probably feels enormous guilt that his brothers went to war and he didn't. And he goes off to Germany in the late 1860s into the early 1870s, where he's virtually incapacitated for several years. But he reads voraciously, and he becomes suicidal, and he's working in an insane asylum. Again, that's the terminology of the time. And he encounters someone who is having some kind of fit or seizure and is just rocking back and forth and chanting. And William James looks at this person and says, that shape I am, I am no different from that person. And he's struggling with whether or not he should live or whether he should kill himself. And he said what saved his life was faith. 
he had faith, which for him only meant the willingness to live on a possibility, the willingness to roll the dice on something, the willingness to live on a maybe his life was worth living, and that his faith in free will made it be a fact that he was living a life that was worth living. So faith for James is very common. Faith can be about anything. It's about being willing to act. Faith is always connected to action. It's being willing to act even where the results are not certified in advance. That's all faith is. And William James says in a variety of... He wasn't really a particularly religious person, was he? He wasn't, but, you know, his his father was really interested in different kinds of theology. So the family background had been strict Presbyterian, and then William James's father split from that, and he always was intrigued by the kinds of theological writings that were more on the margins. So um, Emmanuel Swedborg, that kind of notion that a person has to be brought to their knees before they can be redeemed. That was always in James's background. And as a very highly educated, very literate, very well-connected person, it was like he was steeped in a certain kind of Protestantism without himself ever really declaring a kind of affiliation with that. So his notion of faith, faith is about everything. Faith is about the fact that People will drive on the correct side of the road. Faith is getting lost and deciding, well, I'm going to take the left path as opposed to the right path. But not necessarily about an external force that's going to... No external force needed for faith. No external force needed for faith. And that faith, he says, physics traffics in faith as much as any discipline. So physics makes hypotheses about things that they can't yet prove. They become foundational, and only later do they prove it. So if James says faith is okay in the sciences, people have a right to believe where the evidence ends. And so faith is a kind of working hypothesis. That's all it is. There's no special kind of religious faith. Faith is just that willingness to live on a maybe or possibility. So, you know, many people in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, might say, but I don't have that faith in that kind of God. And, you know, the, the Jamesy and me says, totally fine. But can you have faith maybe that you won't drink for the next 20 minutes? Do you maybe have some faith that there might be a better version of you, that you have some good moral traits? And that is one of the places where I, I think I said before about tripping over that notion of character defects. So when we're asked to list all of our character defects, for me, the defects are part of a fabric that also conclude that also includes one's virtues or strengths. And there's no complete moral inventory unless and until those strengths are listed right alongside whatever shortcomings I have and to circle back. And if I have those shortcomings, they're up to me to fix. Right. In fact, you know, um, as I take a, a secular look at the 12 steps, two of the more, more religious steps, six and seven, are actually, when I look at what you actually do in those steps, if you take, if you get rid of the language of um, character defects and think about maybe 
living differently and improving yourself. Those those steps actually require the most work. Those, those are the steps where there's a, for me, there seems to be a lot, a lot of action. Whereas if you just took them literally, there really isn't much to do, but just to let the God do it for you. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a certain kind of passivity and life is anything but passive. And I think oftentimes I'll just speak for myself, but as I was a young person developing my addiction, I became too passive in my own life. It's like, oh, this thing is just happening to me or, oh, why can't I stop? Or I wish I could stop. And it's very much, you know, that's in line with the critiques about surrender or that you're powerless. I think one of the places where I tripped in the steps where I felt as if my powerless about alcohol, which I was more than willing to admit that I had powerlessness about alcohol. My life certainly was unmanageable and it could have ended if I had kept drinking in the way that I was drinking. I mean, I almost drank myself to death when I was very sick with mono and chickenpox. I could have ruptured my spleen, but you know, that didn't stop me. Didn't count as evidence. But the powerlessness extends from my being powerless over alcohol to suddenly me being powerless about everything else in my life. And that's the leap I couldn't make. And so the, the language of surrender, so you're totally powerless over everything else. So now you just must totally surrender. Surrendering always has negative connotations. When you surrender, you give up something or you're forced to give up something. You surrender your passport if you want, you know, watch any. So I had a conversation with a young woman years, a couple of years ago, a younger woman. We started a secular AA group in Kansas City. And this young woman, probably in her 20s, was in the meeting. And she explained exactly what you said, her problem with the word powerless. It was a real obstacle for her being powerless over everything. It just made it seem like already I'm stuck. You know, it was just bad language for her. And so we talked a little bit about that. But I wonder if you if you think maybe... For women in particular, is that more of an issue? I, I think that's a, it's a huge issue. And I think that's why we have women for sobriety. And it's why, say, someone like Holly Whitaker publishes an op-ed in the New York Times where it says we need to look at the patriarchal roots of Alcoholics Anonymous and to tell women that they are powerless. Women understand that they are powerless in the world in all different kinds of ways, so to say the, the way to get over this terrible affliction is to claim that powerlessness and embrace it and expect to have someone else take care of it for you is, is deeply concerning. So the, the balance, I think, for a lot of us is to accept the things that we're powerless over. And believe me, I know I'm, I'm powerless over a whole lot. I mean... I had to do a home repair and let's just say it didn't go well. Right. I'm powerless to do certain kinds of mechanical things. I know my limitations, so I shouldn't do it. But what does that mean? That means I take alternative action and I figure out a way to get done what I need to have done. So one of the things that, that I suggest, instead of talking about surrender, talking about powerlessness, talk about renouncing something as being empowering. Now, when you renounce something, you say, I no longer want to ascribe to that. I don't want to do I like that. Things. I never thought of that before. I, I think that's brilliant. So it looks at the past. I don't want to do that kind of stuff anymore. 
but it looks to the future to say, and so I'm not going to do those kinds of things anymore. And when I get to see how my actions make a difference, and this goes back to William James deciding to believe, to have faith in free, in free will, that his actions matter, that would make his life worth living. When I start taking concrete steps, renouncing is a very active thing to do. And it is proactive. It looks forward. And it says, I don't want to be that kind of person anymore. I don't want to be the kind of person who does those kinds of things. And then that opens up possibility. So if I don't want to be like that, what are different ways I can be? And that's where the world starts to expand. So in renouncing some particular things or particular practices or, you know, however you want to phrase that, it opens up the space to expand. To I, I love moral philosophy for our language of, say, flourish. How do you move from just surviving to being kind of neutral to thriving or flourishing? And I think William James is really helpful in talking about the ways that people can flourish. They can. His expression is, again, 1902, Reap the practical fruits of the spiritual tree. So what happens when you start to have a different core, a different center, a different axis around which everything important in your life turns? What happens when that is different, where it's no longer the addictive behaviors, it's no longer the recriminations, it's no longer the big, huge cycle of offend and repair and repent and lather, rinse, repeat, and just keep doing that. What happens when you break those cycles when you're no longer that kind of person? And that's where the joy in living is. That's where he talks about people being regenerated and rejuvenated. And he does use the word reborn, but he only means it in that so many things about a person who is in recovery have changed that in some way they're no longer the same person because they have a different, his expression was a habitual center of personal energy. 1902. I mean, it, it sounds like, oh, hey. Language can sometimes be an obstacle, but until you learn about somebody and their time and place and why they were talking that way, then it just kind of opens, it opens my mind up a little bit. Like, you know, when I, when I first heard about this book, Varieties of Religious Experience, and it was written um, back in, what, the 1900s, early 1900s? It came I, out in 1902. I, I'm, I'm figuring, okay, this is a religious book. I'm not interested in this, <laughs> this book. But actually, the lectures that he gave were kind of controversial in religious circles, weren't they? Because he, was, he wouldn't subscribe to any particular brand of religion. In fact, the, the religious experience or belief wasn't so important, was it? But it was more a matter of what the person was doing or how they understood the experience? That's part. So these Gifford lectures are still going on. I mean, which is just amazing. This is one of the most prestigious set of lectures in the world. And they were originally, and they still are about what we would call natural theology. But really what that means is how do you reconcile a world in which, yes, there's science and it's presenting all these facts and people seem to, have religious beliefs or that people are spiritual in this kind of way? Is there any way to reconcile to bring these two together? And so William James says, of course there are. So for James, so he's a psychologist before there's the academic field of psychology. So James founded academic psychology in American universities when he founded the program at Harvard. So there wasn't really psychology to draw on there. But one of the things that James says is that 
it's part of human nature to want to expand out beyond yourself, to think that there's more to the world, there's more to life than just you as an individual and all these other little individuals. He says, you know, it seems like people are always looking for connection or even stronger moral language, communion. And that one of the things he says is that spiritual impulses really just have to do with the belief that there's more to the universe than just me. And that spiritual impulses, they can grow, they can magnify, they can amplify. He says every person can choose that to which they choose to stand in solemn relation. Anything can be spiritual. And so you might think of you look at a beautiful piece of art and you feel yourself being pulled out of yourself in a kind of way. You know, sometimes you encounter beauty and it takes your breath away. Or when you hear music, when you hear voices coming together in harmonies, that it's so much more than the sum of its parts. And James says that's so much more than the sum of its parts. That's what spirituality is. It's not doctrine. It's not dogma. It's not religious corporations. And corporations was a word he used to describe many religions, say Catholicism, for example. But spirituality is both deeply individual, but it connects us. It helps us to expand on beyond, he says, our own little embattled selves. That's all that spirituality is. So these lectures are tons of examples. So he, he read much of what he discussed in the 1860s and 70s when he was in that severe depression. And these texts stayed with him. And he found all these examples from different faith traditions, from literary traditions that had to do with people, he said, for whom spiritual impulses burn like an acute fever. And he said, now, to be honest, Christians have been very good at cataloging their saints. And when they have all these miraculous experiences and the kinds of extreme ascetic denial practices that they would engage with. And he said, and I'm going to cite a lot of them. I'm citing them not because I think that they are the norm or they're the real ones. I'm citing them because oftentimes you see something most clearly when you really, really put it under a microscope. It's just big. You see everything. So I'm going to assemble a lot of these. But you need to know there are just as many cases in which Spiritual impulses burn not because of some big, huge, sudden tsunami, but because someone has gradually changed over time. And he said, those are the people that are really interesting to me. And so in Varieties, James chronicles several people who struggled with what we would call addiction, what we might call addiction to nicotine, what we might call sex addiction, and certainly what we would call alcoholism. And those three stories, I think, probably grabbed hold of Bill Wilson and gave him a big shake. And that, I think, is why... So when Bill Wilson tells his story in the book Alcoholics Anonymous... He tells his story as if it is this kind of miraculous event where God did something to him. But one of the things that William James had always said was, you got to be careful because religions are oftentimes founded on one person's experience and the beliefs that that person comes to to assemble about that experience. So one person's spiritual experiences 
can begin to function normatively or function as dogma or as the right. way things the problem should of over belief and i've never heard that that term before over belief yeah it's it's an old expression so again kind of sticking with the language i love language and i love bringing terms back into currency when they have fallen out and that was what happened with Bill Wilson is he fell into this problem of overbelief that his experience, I guess, must be what other people should have. Well, he made sense of his experience as God having done something to him. Why? Because he was raised. I think he, too, was raised with a Calvinist background, wasn't he? So there is a very providential, active God who, you know, is, is overseeing everything. And so it's like, oh, little Bill Wilson, we better get him back in line. So, you know, boom, let's scare the bejesus out of him and then let's set him back up again. I know I'm being facetious here. But the idea that a God could and would do that is very much a consequence of kind of standard fair Christian beliefs. And so his overbeliefs are the framework through which he interpreted his experience and they're the framework that really helped him to structure what becomes the 12 steps. So it makes sense that people do that. But James had reminded his, these were given as lectures and then they were published the same year. So he reminds his listeners and readers, be careful to check your overbeliefs here. It's a kind of violence to try to make someone else's spiritual experiences fit into your own framework or to deny spiritual experiences because they don't fit your framework. Now that I think would be ahead of his time in that because people to this day have a difficult time doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and William James was what we call a, a pluralist in philosophy. So William James argues very clearly that there's no way that one religion could ever be proven or demonstrated to be right or to be true or to be absolute. He said, because there's always going to be a thumb on the scale. There's always a thumb on the scale because every one of us will interpret the world and arguments according to those overbeliefs or those background framing conditions that we just all become enculturated into and that we take on and we no longer think about them because they're the lenses through which we see everything. But James is always very careful when he would say what we Christians call God, as he would give an example from a Buddhist text, or as he would give an example from a literary text. But understandably so, I think Bill Wilson was just so excited to have found something that helped him to make sense of what happened to him, that he took it and he ran with it. And he developed it and it became this program that, yes, has helped millions, but we never know how many people maybe got left behind because he didn't take James's more inclusive sense of higher powers. I mean, here are some of the things that William James included as higher powers. So Ralph Waldo Emerson was kind of an intellectual godfather to him. So the great American transcendentalist, Ralph Waldo Emerson, talking about ideals of truth and beauty and justice. Those are higher powers. Enthusiasm for mankind. They could have put that in that book. They could have put that in the book. I know. Book. <laughs> Patriotism, moral principles, a sense of human decency. All of those are higher powers, higher and friendly powers that he says each person can kind of reach out to and feel a kind of communion or connection with 
So you never feel like you are totally alone or that you are the sum of the universe. And one of the most compelling examples that, that James offers comes from Henry David Thoreau living at Walden Pond, talking about walking in the woods one day in the mist and feeling a sense of communion with the pine needles and feeling one with nature. So anything can be a higher power because those higher and friendly powers just kind of expand you and pull you out of your own small walled off existence. So a very different notion of higher and friendly powers. So the plural there carries all the weight than this God as we understood him that fits so easily into a Christian kind of narrative. Right. And James was um, also a bit ahead of his time. When, when you look at it now from, from what we know today is we know today that uh, there's many different pathways and there has to be a different pathway that each individual in recovery is their individual recovery experience. And William James understood that in the sense that, you know, when just comparing the, what, what Bill Wilson, how he understood it was you have to hit a complete bottom Whereas James says that everybody has their own threshold of misery, I guess, right? Yes. And yes. so it could be kind of dangerous to just let the floor fall out from under you. You know, you can stop whatever your threshold of misery might be. And, and I think that gets back to that powerlessness, that you're not going to admit your powerlessness until you fall absolutely flat on your rear end. And you are, you know, what is, what's the expression from the big book? Complete ego deflation. Sure, that happens for some people, and that's what happened with Bill Wilson. But William James doesn't make any kind of claim like that at all. Once again, it was a misreading of James using stories where people really had suffered significant loss, but not without attending to the fact that James says every person has their own misery threshold. Every person has a certain degree of suffering that they can tolerate. And that many people, when they reach that point or, you know, they get beyond that point, that they may, by their volition, so volition is just another in philosophy, a word for will, by their will, they decide to make certain kinds of changes. So are there conversions of the sort that Bill W. had? Yes. Are there more conversions where people become reborn, regenerated, rejuvenated by very gradual means? Yes. But you don't see this in Alcoholics Anonymous unless you get to the second appendix. And really, usually only the nerdy people are reading the appendix. And, and that's where Bill Wilson says, oh, yes. And, you know, American philosopher, psychologist William James says there are these what he called an educational conversion. The better, more accurate way is to say it's a gradual and volitional conversion. There's so much packed into this very well-written book. And it really, when you read it, you really have to stop sometimes and think about what you've just read. And it, it, it forces you to kind of think, at least did with me, forced me to kind of think about things a little bit differently. There's just a tremendous amount of good information in there. Did you write this for the person who is kind of struggling with this concept of a higher power or the way that recovery might be presented, what was your audience here that you're thinking of? I have a lot of audience. And of course, I'm always an audience of one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you get to write because you like to write. <laughs> well, no, I wrote because I really had to think this thing through. So, you know, I think through writing a lot. And sure, it's written for 
people like us who struggle with that notion of God and the powerlessness and the idea that we are going to get out of our addictions by having a providential being do something for us. That works for many people, and I I am so glad it, it does. I also wanted to show the world what William James has to offer people, regardless of whether they are in AA or not, regardless if they're even suffering with any kind of addiction, because James is such a student of human nature, and there's so much suffering in the world. And in James, this is before we had the terms clinical depression, before anxiety becomes a medical diagnosis. Anxiety is an old philosophical concept that really is quite popular in the 1850s with the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, and angst and despair. Again, bringing back words that have fallen out of our everyday language or they've become trivialized or in sort of modern medicine, um, you can't see, but my computer is sitting on the DSM-5. So the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And William James, I think in many ways, would hate the DSM-5 for taking humanity out of acute suffering of existence You know, James's words, melancholia, pathological fear, panic fear, all those kinds of languages. James was worried about the ways that even in its infancy, psychology was becoming scientized. It wanted to be a hard science like physics or like chemistry. And I think James would have a hard time squaring himself. He would certainly say, my gosh, I think it's great that we can do these brain scans But a brain scan is just a slice of time, a very narrow slice of time. And to think that that is going to help us explain mysteries of the human condition. Psychology doesn't really deal with the human condition anymore. Psychology mostly deals with the individual, either abnormal development or normal development. And that's only sort of part of who we are and how we are in the world. So I really wanted to say to people, oh my gosh, William James is such an incredibly informative and kind and gentle, what's the word I would want to use here? Um, Not just observer, but participant in suffering and a wonderful kind of field guide to how life can be different. And so in James's own life, he went through various kinds of cycles. There were times when he found himself slipping back into that you know, pathological melancholy. There were times when he felt utterly devastated. His physical health was frail in many ways, but he always was able to remind himself and to somehow work himself out of it. He said everybody is always a mixture of what he calls some healthy-mindedness and some morbid-mindedness, some optimism and extreme pessimism. But because we humans are always changing, our selves are always developing and changing. He said, selving would be a better way to say it. Not that I have a self, but I'm selving. And the balances change over time. And what that says to me is um, self-knowledge is one of the most important things we need to have in living anyway. I mean, I would say this in any moral philosophy classes, like you better know yourself because if you don't know yourself, plenty of other people will tell you who you are and how you should be. Yep, that is so true. Very true. (laughs) I think one of the greatest gifts is self-knowledge. It's one of the greatest gifts. And if, if you read James carefully enough, you will see very clearly where Bill Wilson 
gets the nine the nine step promises. That's something that Alcoholics Anonymous really got right was how life can be. So James's expression was, you know, reaping the practical fruits of the spiritual tree. And he talks about, you know, you come to have a firmness of character. You're not zigzagging. You're not slamming back and forth between extremes all the time. There's a kind of stability. And stability is always relational, right? So you know if you're on a bicycle and you're coming around a corner, if you don't lean a certain way, you're going to topple. So stability is relational. It's dynamic. So too is equilibrium. And he says, you know, wonderful things can happen. You experience new truths about yourself and about the world. You come to see things differently and you come to have different priorities and you come to see what you can change, what, you, what change you can affect and things that you can't. And that's a great gift. And he says too, you, you start to have that more expansive sense of a continuity with a friendly power. You just, instead of seeing other people always as challenges or always seeing the world through the lens of grievance, when you see the world through gratitude, you just, that can multiply exponentially. Again, the world expands and you're able to say yes, instead of always saying no and just kind of hunching down and being in battle. So the kind of freedom you get from letting go of old grievances, he says that that's, they're, they're broken like bubbles and severed like cobwebs. They're just well, Peg, this has been a really interesting conversation. Is there anything that I didn't cover that I should have that you would like to mention before we finalize this? I don't think so. You, this has been a, a great conversation, and I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to what bring William James to people in and hope that they find something useful in William James and hopefully useful in this book, sort of my, my mark of, of what makes something good is how useful it is. Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible about that thing at William James. I mean, like I said, 30 some years in AA and could really care less about William James. All of a sudden two people that are very excited about William James I have on this podcast and I'm like, that guy is something else. He's really, that guy is something else. He is something else. He really, and his family is something else. Yeah, it's I mean, pretty... There's a lot going on there. So anyway, you can learn more about Peg at her website, pegoconnorauthor.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes on that. And you've also written another book that I'm going to have to check out, Life on the Rocks, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. And that's a whole other topic about um, addiction as as being about meaning in one's life. That's something else I need to... And making meaning. Yeah, making meaning. So anyway, so thanks again, Peg. I really That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.